welcome to our Spotlight podcast series. Listen along as we catch up with members of our community. Okay, thank you for joining us today. And um, we have with us Cal, who I'm going to allow to introduce themselves. Hello there, my name is Cal Russell-Thompson. My pronouns are they, them and I'm the project officer for the Faculty of Business and Law at UWE. Thank you so much for joining us, Cal. So, Cal, could you tell us about your role at UWE? So, I work for the accreditations team, and I also do a bit of work as a data protection coordinator. So, when in my work for the accreditations team, um, we do a lot of uh, data work. We analyze a lot of spreadsheets, we then kind of get all of that data into a report and we're sending those reports out to various different professional bodies um, and the point of that exercise is to get all of our wonderful programs accredited and to basically get a seal of approval that says these programs really are as good as UE says they are so that's sort of the, the point of my job really is to kind of provide some of the data that backs up that assertion um, and then my my second part of the role um, is the data protection coordinator role. So uh, that's responding to data breaches, that's sending out communications um, about best ways to sort of protect your data and the data of others, um, and also providing a strategy for our data protection audit, which we've uh, we're in the middle of at the moment. So it's um it's quite an exciting time, and uh, been in the job for a couple of months now, and I'm enjoying it so far. Brilliant. So very data driven, it sounds like. Oh, yes. And yeah. I've, I've got an English lit background, so I wasn't expecting that uh, 10 years ago, but there we are. <laughs> I suppose the career journey that we all go on sometimes surprises us, but there oh, we yes. go. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, just to ask a bit more about your role, um, and it may be quite hard to answer actually, but what is a standard day in your job? So um, as you've no doubt surmised, it's a lot of spreadsheets. Um, and I'll, I'll receive uh, um, sometimes several of them a day. Um, that they will involve doing a lot of Excel formulae, that kind of thing, just to uh, figure out um, what the underlying narrative is for that data. Um, I'll also talk to a lot of international partners, um, and that will involve basically getting a sense of all the good things that they've been doing um, and their individual staff. And then we find ways to basically quantify those things and classify those staff members. So it's um, it's a, a quite a, a varied job, even though it doesn't necessarily sound like it on paper. That sounds really interesting. And it's also, um, yeah, as I said, quite varied and presumably quite driven by deadlines. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> But, but it's one of those things where you have a, a fairly long term deadline and then you you have a chance to strategize and then come up with a, a schedule for yourself and then work towards that rather than it being a case of firing off like 100 outputs a day and each of them being like both urgent and important, which is um, that's the, the way that I've worked in some of my previous roles. And I much prefer this kind of more sort of long term strategic way of thinking. Um, the team is also wonderful and they put an awful lot of trust in you to just kind of get the job done. And there is a real focus on outputs um rather than it being a, a case of get this done absolutely immediately you have more of a chance to sort of prioritize and, and structure your day the way you feel so it's it's really good from a mental health perspective as well to be able to do that and to be able to kind of choose how your your day is structured 
Sounds like the perfect working environment. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, yeah, absolutely. Brill. So thinking a bit more about you, um, could you tell us a bit about your story? So maybe starting by telling us what you did before you started working at UWE? So I worked in secondary education for quite a long time and um, I because I started out as an English teacher um, after after the end of uni and I didn't enjoy it very much but I absolutely loved working in the education sector um, so I, I stayed working in by like, special educational needs for a long time um, did a, a master's in psychology of education um, a couple of years back now and then moved into school operations so I was um, the head PA for a while um, and that involved an awful lot of dipping my toe into sort of general like operational things around the school um, and an awful lot of first aid which um, I found very varied <laughs> like everything from kids saying that they've got gum in their hair can I have a first aider all the way up to um, actual first aid incidents <laughs> so, um, so you would get really involved in sort of the nitty-gritty of, of like life around the school um, and I came here after doing that so um, I actually joined as, as a PA and was was working for the law department um, and then I moved on to this role um, as part of a secondment opportunity. So it's um, one of those things where you look back and like suddenly there's just a shift from one sector to another um, and yet there's a lot of um, cuts, there's a lot of cut through between those two sectors. I mean you know you still get to sort of work with and interact with students in I think there's a lot of roles at, at UE where that's the case, even if your job description doesn't necessarily marry with you know, interacting with students. Um, I mean, I've um, obviously worked before with uh, with your team, Rachel, on um, like sort of doing a, a couple of promotional videos for the faculty that involve sort of like talking to and working with students. Um, and inevitably as well, sometimes you'll just get someone knocking on your office door and saying, can I have some help with this or that? And that'll be a student or a member of faculty. Um, and, and that's very similar to the, the sort of interactions I was having in my old sector. So um, there's some continuity between those two things. Um, and and so it doesn't really feel like I've moved sectors. It just feels like the student body's got slightly older. <laughs> and that's kind of the main the main difference, really, I would say. As long as you don't get too many students coming to ask you uh, to help them get gum out their hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, luckily, we've got quite a good student cohort here, so we don't tend to have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, so yeah, a bit more about yourself and um, what do you like to do when you aren't working? So I've had a long-term hobby of digital illustration so I do a lot of um, work with a graphics tablet and a laptop and that's that's my whole setup um, and I'll, I'll just sit down and, and doodle and it sort of um, illustrate but um, so it's it's all kind of very sort of hobbyist stuff. I don't really do it commercially, but it's it's a really nice way to sort of unwind. Um, I I also go for walks and runs with the dog, <laughs> and um, just just generally live quite like a, a nice sort of quiet life in Stoke Gifford. And um, it's only only ten minutes from here as well, <laughs> so um, it's it's quite. Um, yeah, it's quite it's quite chill, really. Like I'm, I'm not one of those people who has like a massive like high flying like side hustle outside of work or anything. Like um, I just quite like to go home and draw and pet the dog. 
Well, I think we've all found um, sort of value in in the simpler things, maybe a little bit over the last couple of years. So, I yeah, yeah having those hobbies that are for you and that time that's for you. Definitely, and I really did rediscover those during lockdown as well. I think I think that was one of the big um, inflection points, actually, in in sort of choosing to sort of respect my own time outside of work a little bit more, because. Um, I, I I did like previously have uh, done a lot of like volunteering and and things like that. Like I, I worked for um the Kujima Radio for quite a while. Like previously, um did a lot of um myself outside of work things for Bristol Museum as well. Um and and got really heavily involved with it. But um I think it's really really easy to burn out, uh, and that that's um that's something that I think you definitely during lockdown I think a lot of people became a lot more mindful of um so I've kind of taken the foot off the gas a little bit in terms of sort of my own life outside of work and um I think that's important to do I, I think it's important to take a break sometimes um yeah so I definitely like activities outside of work that's something that I will probably be doing slightly more with a bit more intensity um in the coming years but certainly during the pandemic i thought do you know what actually maybe it's time to just give myself a bit of a break and i, I hope that i hope that other people have done that and not feel guilty about it really yeah it's been interesting hasn't it how how different people have felt about having um, an overlap i suppose between the workspace and the home space and whether they've been able to take that break that previously they would have done by simply coming away from the office physically i, I you know i think it's been different for lots of people so um but thanks for thanks for sharing your experiences there and giving us all a bit of a tip <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah just be nice to yourself absolutely absolutely we should be, we should be. But um, I'm also really delighted that you're happy to talk about your experience of, as a member of staff at UE. So would you mind describing your experience of working at UE as a non-binary person? Yeah, so yes. one of the things that I immediately found really positive about, first of all, about switching sectors and secondly, about UE specifically, is that um, in, in my previous sector, it's really quite like secondary education is really gendered environment and um, obviously everyone's referred to sort of like by Mr. This or Mrs. That or or whatever and it's really hard to break away from that and it's really hard as a non-binary person in an environment like that to meaningfully come out in any way because obviously everyone's immediately like well what do we refer to you as and in that setting um, I can be like well because uh, when you're when you're going by Mr. and Mrs. and so on the non-binary version is Mix or MX um, really really difficult in a school setting for anyone to sort of take that and, and educate like an entire school full of kids about it um, and obviously the default is to call you sir or miss based on your presumed sex or your presumed gender identity um, so that presented a really big problem in that environment and I just didn't feel comfortable coming out um, Whereas here, I, I sort of took a bit of a punt on the application form and thought, you know, I'm going to I'm just going to use mix and in my application form um, and the business manager, Catherine Davis, uh, noticed immediately and asked me my pronouns and I found the the words they them coming out of my mouth and I thought, OK, well, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> um, and what I loved about that actually was that um, that opened a lot of other doors in terms of like being able to sort of speak candidly, first of all to her and then to other members of staff about being non-binary and about sort of some of the needs that come with that. For example, um, like Catherine immediately was just like, you can use the, the bathrooms that feel like appropriate to your gender identity because being non-binary is like, a it's, it's a trans identity, but it's also 
uh, quite a fluid one as well. Like there are days where I wake up and feel more mask. There are days where I wake up and feel more femme, you know, and it's not always easy to know sort of what what's going to feel comfortable until I'm sort of in the work setting. So um, there are points where I'll, uh, like, for, for example, use the, the gender neutral toilets that are on various different levels. There are points where I use the men's bathroom, points where I use the women's bathroom. And I think that's just like one of those things that because that had been said in induction immediately, I was like, actually, that feels really comfortable. And I think that's something that is it's also kind of encoded in in some of our policies as well, which is really nice. Like someone's really gone through, and the EDI team as well, I think have done a lot of great work in thinking these things through. Um, there's also an LGBT network that um, is is really, really positive. And like we've, um, like I've met with them a couple of times and we've had some sort of email exchanges as well. And um, even though I've not been here all that long in the grand scheme of things, I think they've just done a great job of making me feel sort of supported and welcomed at UE. Um, I think um, I think there's definitely like as well like a good movement around things like putting your pronouns in your email signature, um, which has actually been really a really good way to sort of come out in a way that's quite like it doesn't require too much effort from me. And I know that makes me sound really lazy, but I think one of the one of the big things that um, becomes expected of you if you're LGBTQ um, or really if you're from any any sort of minority really a lot of emotional labor is expected of you normally and I think that's one of the big issues so um, for example if someone gets your pronoun wrong for example I've often um, in in sort of other settings been encouraged to just oh go and correct them like why didn't you say something that sort of thing the reality is that's really difficult because then you're sort of asked to sort of confront a person really you know and, and asking anyone to confront anyone in our sort of overly polite British society that's quite difficult isn't it that's not that's not a very easy thing to do um and so that's um that's that's something that I I thought was a really nice kind of subtle way of um of going actually let's let's start disseminating pronouns and get people used to disclosing pronouns um and obviously sort of more generally there's been something of a, of a backlash against trans rights in sort of the, the the wider country and and i think globally as well a little bit unfortunately um and non-binary people also tend to sort of get lost in the conversation slightly um partly because for a while there's not been very good legal sort of distinctions or definitions around being non-binary um but there is now legal precedent about recognizing non-binary people and respecting them in the workplace as of last year. Um, there was a case called Taylor versus Jaguar Land Rover, if anyone's interested. It was an employment tribunal about discrimination in the workplace against a non-binary person. Um, and after that um, all, all happened, there's basically now been legal precedent for non-binary people are protected under the 2010 Equality Act. And UE was very forward thinking, I, I think, in sort of in, incorporating into my induction process and into the subsequent support I've had inclusive, uh, non-binary inclusive and trans inclusive language and support structures around being a non-binary person. And I think I think that's that's something that a lot of employers I think need to sort of take up a little bit more um, and yeah it, it definitely is extended to because I've had uh, two line managers since I've been here since obviously I've switched roles both of them amazing at sort of recognizing that I might have slightly different needs from people who are cisgender who work in in the same environment and um, 
I really think having those those open conversations proactively if you're a manager and just anticipating that need if you if you see any kind of signs of it it really does open a lot of doors for that person because otherwise um for example had had I put out that indication of it might be non-binary and it not being recognized I I don't know I might personally not have felt comfortable um and so I think a lot of this stuff does need to come from leadership and from the top, that sort of recognition. Um, and at UE, I'm, I'm seeing that recognition. And I think that's something that a lot of employers need to sort of follow suit on. I suppose it must have been quite reassuring, like you said, although maybe partly unexpected to have it addressed so early on, sort of maybe yeah. as part of like the interview process and the induction process. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. It was it was really good, um, and and I think it obviously as well because that that's at the stage where you know you've just accepted a job offer, and um, obviously after the euphoria of passing an interview, you're like way, and then you're like oh, now I have to actually go and do the job that I've just interviewed for, and obviously you've you've had some time to sort of get to know the people, you get to know um, the expectations. But it's a bit different when when you actually start, and obviously sometimes the mask can slip if the employer's actually potentially um, not acting in as good faith as they indicated in the interview. Um, and in this in this case, it was it was just a really reassuring moment because um, all, all, of, like, all of the vibes you kind of get from an interview were still there and they were still positive and they've remained that way. Um, and I think that's that's something that you don't really get too often. <laughs> um, and also, I think I think making the time to do that as well. And everyone's really busy and, and really rushed all the time. But even just having those moments to contemplate the the identity and the needs of the people around you, I think that that's something that I found really surprising. Actually, um, coming from a coming from secondary ed, which is such a, a everything is just at pace constantly, and obviously it is in um, further education and higher education as well. But it it just it just feels like someone sat down and and thought about it and and went actually maybe it is important to just give someone the space to discuss this stuff with us so we can understand it a bit more and yeah definitely having even just having those little moments built into the induction process I think was transformative for me. That's so lovely to hear and can I I'm just curious um, to know if, if someone had a question about how to address you or, or anything like that in, and in terms of trying to sort of be open about these things, would you rather someone just asked you? Is that how you would prefer to to address that? Do you know what I would love that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and I think we're so we're so polite as a country, and um, that sometimes can hamstring us a bit. I I genuinely think that people don't realise quite how nice that is to be asked. How would you like to be referred to? How would you like me to um, when just discussing you with other people, how would you like me to refer to you? Because obviously when when someone's talking to me, they're not going to be using the they them pronouns. They're going to be using second person pronouns. They're going to be saying you, you know, they're going to be saying Cal, they're going to be doing that. And um, unless they're particularly rude, you know, <laughs> just like referring to me in the third person as they speak to me. Um, so it's, it's actually quite rare that I, I hear um, like my own pronouns being used. So I have no idea how people refer to me when I'm not in the room. Um, and so actually it's a real courtesy for someone to go, when you're not here and I need to refer to you, how would you like me to refer to you? I mean, that not that great? Like that sounds really polite to me. And I think 
as a as a country as well we we really we do have this kind of internalized sort of code of everything has to be right the first time we can't make any slip-ups if we make slip-ups then everyone's going to judge us and i think um that's impacted i think a lot of the discourse that we're having lately and i think everyone's everyone's on high alert about um about pronouns as well i think at the moment like there's a, people are really worried about it and i've i've had i've had people who have used the wrong pronouns um when referring to me then come and apologize to me about it which is is lovely but it's also you're not one of the the people using them in bad faith if you're coming and apologizing to me you know so I, I think I think it's just one of those things where we can extend the benefit of the doubt both ways, can't we? Like, I mean, I I think if someone is going, okay, what what's the best way for this to refer to this person? Then I know that they're acting in good faith, and so, you know, I mean, it's it's a it's the least I can do to 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 go, oh, yeah, absolutely, please do ask me <laughs> and. I'll I'll respect that and and not react as if you've kind of committed some kind of social infraction just for ask asking me how best to represent my identity. I I, I think that's a terrific thing to do uh, to be proactive in it. Um, and actually, it's like I was saying earlier. There's a lot of emotional labour that I think people in minorities are kind of kind of have to do in addition to the stuff that everybody in our society has to do um, just to be recognised and seen for who they are and. To, for someone to take a little bit of that burden away just by asking that question, I think that's a tremendous thing, and I think more people should do it. Mm. Well, like you know, to be to be honest, I was a little bit sort of worried that I would I would slip up in the in the interview and and not um not oh, say oh, the right thing, but you know, oh, it's, um, <laughs> but we we do all make mistakes, don't we? And I and it was interesting when you were talking about um, being in the sort of the school environment because mm. we're always encouraging children. To learn and and to and if they make a mistake it's really okay uh, and they can correct that mistake so actually really yeah. it's a bit of a shame i suppose that the, that the school environment at this particular point perhaps or in some cases perhaps hasn't um hasn't got on board with that a little bit more or, or you weren't able you didn't feel able mm. i, I think i think it's starting to come in, yeah. in that in those environments um and i'd, I'd been i'd had conversations with hr in those places and and they they had obviously um and those were positive ones and not as a result of anything bad happening it was just me kind of going by the way i'm non-binary what do i do <laughs> um and but that didn't really go much further than that and, and i think um one of the reasons is that it's, it's just an environment where um everyone's focusing on educating kids and i don't think people necessarily um have time to sort of look to their own stuff and go um mm -hmm. what about the edi needs of, of stuff like um yeah. it's, it's well, i think i think it's just a very intense sector mm -hmm. in that regard and um and I, I think i think that change is, is coming and I, I knew of people in my previous employer who had um successfully come out and um were being recognized with they then pronouns in in the workplace um it's just not something that i felt comfortable doing and i think um a lot of that as well kind of comes from my own experiences with uh, with gender dysphoria which is that feeling of not sort of um feeling like your your sort of physical presence in your body is necessarily ref reflective of your gender um that definitely emerged when i was in teaching where you know i was mr russell thompson all the time which just kind of feels really wrong even saying it um mm -hmm. and 
the uh, the thing that was difficult about that was obviously the expectation of you kind of come into work and you're you have to be you have to be wearing a suit and tie and you've got to have your shirt tucked in and you've got to have um, basically present as the the most archetypal male presence that could that could possibly be on the premise that you're setting an example to children. I don't think it was interrogated enough back at in those early days of my teacher training, just how just what example that actually does set because it, it sets the example that there are only two types of people in the world there's professional example of male body and professional example of female body <laughs> and that's yeah. it and and I think that unfortunately sets some quite um that actually sets some expectations in my own head as much as it probably did in the heads of a lot of kids you know just uh, just the idea that like that's you in the professional environment and because that was my first job out of uni as well I didn't really know any other way of sort of presenting myself in the workplace and and so I spent years after that um not quite realizing what the problem was because it wasn't really out to myself as non-binary at that point either um and I was going from job to job going why does it feel awful getting dressed for work in the morning mm -hmm. why does it feel so strange having my hair cut short for the sake of a dress code why does it feel wrong being referred to as mr russell thompson um and those aren't questions that you feel equipped to interrogate when you walk into an environment where the vast majority of the people you're working with are beholden to a uniform and they're they're having to to wear the same kind of like boxy suits as you are essentially there's no time for you to interrogate your gender identity there really or, or to start thinking about how would I like to dress in this professional environment as opposed to how a dress code does um and and so that's that's another freedom I think here as well like I I, I tend to dress in a quite a if I'm honest quite a grungy way <laughs> but it's um it's it's still a I, I still wear a lot of stuff that um is straight out of the women's section um and in fact, the majority of my clothes are, and even just knowing that <laughs> makes me feel more comfortable in them, even if they don't necessarily look particularly femme. And um, having the freedom to do that even is a massive, a massive one. I think I think there's just a lot of things like even even like I said, down to dress codes, down to those um, salutations we use like Mr. and Mrs. Mm -hmm. They those things cause constraints on identity and obviously like you know you're in a professional environment you should present in a professional manner but there are ways to do that that don't involve um following a, a rigid sort of dress code based on gender binaries and I, I think that's that's something that i've really appreciated here as well because I, I think that's a very big difference and i think i think the secondary if i'm honest the secondary education sector needs to take a long hard look at itself in terms of what those those little bits of semantics mm -hmm. the, whether it's your dress code whether it's the language we use to refer to people in those gendered ways we need to start asking ourselves what those expectations uh, what expectations are being conveyed onto children yeah. really and and onto the adults who work there because i think it's actually causing a lot more distress than one might realize and and when i was working at um the, my previous secondary school as well. I worked for the LGBT society a bit there because there was one as a really thriving one. And the yeah. biggest issue that came up over and over again was the uniform code, which was, you know, that, that's just not changed in my whole time in the sector. And, and you know, the, the, these are kids who, and obviously like the generations coming up are much, much more accepting of the fluidity of gender and gender as a spectrum. Um, 
and they were saying the same things over and over again, which which was that this uniform code is not really allowing us to explore our own gender identities particularly well. Um, and so, you know, the, we need to be listening to that. We need to be taking that through into the workplace as, as much as anything as well, because when these kids leave school, they're going to be managed by people from generations that didn't acknowledge the fluidity of gender so much. And if they've, you know, if they've had a restrictive uniform code as well, they're already going to feel uncomfortable. They're going to feel even more uncomfortable in the workplace. It's what happened to me. And I'm sure if we don't start to really start examining those kind of expectations and the way we gender different aspects of the workplace, I think that will happen with the next generation and so on as well. Yeah, 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 it's the same, but it's it's really good and encouraging, I suppose, to hear you say that change is coming, and yeah, that yeah. for you at UE, actually, we we are making really positive steps, and that you feel really comfortable being your non-binary self and and being Cal in the work environment, which is just so lovely and yeah, really yeah. positive. So yeah, definitely. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing something that's really personal. So I'm really, really delighted, and um, yeah, yeah, thank you again for your time. Oh. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. It's been lovely. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to our Spotlight podcast series brought to you by Bristol Business School and Bristol Law School at UE Bristol.